Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 14 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation with Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkoff and Ken Lowe, the chairman, president, and CEO of Scripps Networks Interactive the multi-platform lifestyle media company that includes HGTV, the Food Network, the Travel Channel, and many others. In this in-depth conversation, we hear everything from Ken's start as a radio DJ down south with fellow upstart Rick Dees to his 37-year history with Scripps, shepherding it into the juggernaut that it is today. Ken's a great storyteller. Enjoy the conversation. Ken Lowe was still a college student when he became a DJ on WKIX in Raleigh, North Carolina. He was quickly promoted upstairs to management, and by 1980, he made it over to the legendary family-owned media company, E.W. Scripps, managing their radio stations. Over many decades, he presided over their expansion into owned and operated lifestyle cable channels, and at the turn of the century, led their evolution into the digital realm, including their 2008 spin-out of Scripps Networks Interactive as a standalone company. Now, on the verge of the company's merger with another cable giant, Discovery, Ken shares the stories of his success, the strategies that have made Scripps so dominant, and his vision for the future. Enjoy this fun and far-reaching chat. Ken, welcome. Thanks, Arya. Good to be here. <laughs> the reason why I think Kindred Cast exists and the reason why we took on a podcast is because there's some really great narratives and some really rich stories about the industry and about the executives within the industry that I don't think really comes to the light of day during earnings calls, obviously, or normal investor presentations. And there's a great story here with you, Ken Lowe, and with the scripts, lineage and history in formation. A lot of uh, what's happening today, moving forward for the next 20, 30, 40 years, is about change from now. The media industry is known for reinvention. And that's why I was really happy to have you agree to come to talk about the script story because it's all about that reinvention and businesses and transition. Well, thank you. I, look, I'm honored to be here and uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I love the podcast format because it very much is about storytelling. My checkerboard career, having to reinvent myself and my career, but also I think it goes to the heart of being an entrepreneur and You're driven by change. You're driven by the competitive fire that says there are new obstacles placed on the course. How are you going to handle it? To me, that's been one of the fun parts of being in all the different businesses I've been in. It's a great pleasure to be here and talk about it a little bit today. Thank you. Well, when we started KindredCast and a podcast service out of an investment bank in LionTree, people, I think, appreciate it, but we always get the question, how is an investment bank doing a podcast? And What's so interesting or different about that? And are you guys even qualified to do this? <laughs> and then I thought about Ken Lowe. And I said, well, <laughs> Ken Lowe, if an investment bank could do a podcast, then a uh, media executive could certainly have a uh, career in broadcasting. <laughs> I'm going to bring out some stories about Ken today. You had a passion for the media business and the broadcasting business, I think, since the age of 15 years old, when you really became a radio personality. When you went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and you majored in radio, Mm -hmm. you had a roommate named Rick Dees. Right. Who a lot of us know as, uh, you know, the top 40 and a great radio personality to this day. And I know you guys are still great friends. We are. Take me through the uh, beginning of your 
background and your passion for radio. And I'd love to hear how Ken Lowe sounded back in college in Southern Broadcasting. <laughs> well, let's see if I can make a very uh, a long story longer. I grew up in a rural part of North Carolina. Oddly enough, it was a little town near Mount Airy, North Carolina, which eventually became known as Mayberry because it was the birthplace of Andy Griffith. So the Andy Griffith television show, if you ever saw that on television, I used to tell people, you know, my upbringing was very much like growing up in Mayberry, except Mayberry was much more sophisticated on the television show. But being raised on a tobacco farm in a rural part of North Carolina at a very early age, my window to the world was radio. I was fascinated with television, but as Jeff Foxworthy said in those days, you only had three channels and TV and if the president was on, you were screwed. It was before cable. This opportunity, especially at night with AM radio, to hear stations from New York and Chicago, WABC and New York, WLS in Chicago. So like a lot of kids my age, I had the portable radio because it was also a time when music, you know, was impacting. I was too young to really be a part of that 50s Elvis and rockabilly and when rock and roll really began. But by the 60s, we were so fortunate, not just with the British invasion, but Motown. I had this deep appreciation for gospel, Southern music, Southern R&B. I loved working with my hands. I built all these little tree houses and clubhouses, and I was fascinated with carpentry, building things. When I was about 10 years old, I built a little radio station in a shed there on my dad's farm. It would broadcast two or three miles, which was still illegal in those days. And I got another kid who happened to be collecting 45 records to be one of the disc jockeys. We had a little radio station, but it really was starting to fertilize as part of my brain and my being. It was growing into all of these things that were interesting to me. Music, radio because of the one-on-one -on -one nature of communicating. They teach you very early on in radio, it's a one-to-one -one medium. You never think of a big audience, you think you're just talking to one person out there. I got to tell stories, and that was a part of my culture. The South is full of great storytellers. And then the fact that I kind of building things on a farm, and one thing led to another, and ended up at the University of North Carolina as you said, in radio, television, motion pictures, because my real drive was to do documentary films. And I started doing that at Chapel Hill, 16 millimeter, the old hot glue documentary films, while I was working commercial radio at a station in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that's where I met Rick Dees. He showed up at my dorm one day, knocked on the door at my dorm room. And he and I have been best friends ever since, just because of radio, but also growing up in the South and being who we are. And by the way, a another roommate was John Tesh, you know, the musician. Tesh was this tall, good-looking guy, so he snarfed all the girlfriends. And Dees and I spent all our weekends working radio. And this is a side, they had a campus station. They asked us to come to, you know, you're the big commercial disc jockeys. You're the guys that work on commercial radio. So why don't you come down to the little campus station and help us out and interview this artist? And so we did, and we went down. Long story short, this guy showed up, hippie in those days, stoned out of his mind, could barely play his guitar. These more or less just threw him out of the studio. It turned out to be James Taylor <laughs> because James's father was a professor at the University of North Carolina. So it tells you what kind of nose we had for talent. It was fascinating. REA, we got to work with all of these rock groups because we'd MC concerts and uh, FM radio was taking off. And it was just this rich period of music and music festivals, you know, the Woodstocks of the world. And, you know, I look back and how fortunate was I. And of course, Rig wanted to pursue radio and continued, but I quickly learned I didn't have 
very much ability to do documentary films. And so I kind of moved back to radio, but always had that feeling of doing video production. And that led me to kind of moving around the country as disc jockeys and radio personalities did in those days. We used to say you could always tell a really successful radio personality by the size of his U-Haul trailer because we were constantly moving. Because you would move from market to market and take bigger jobs. And you're always trying to get to New York or L.A. or Chicago. But I realized early on this is not what I want to do because it's a little bit like an athlete in those days. I mean, a radio personality's lifespan was not going to be that long unless you're Rick Dees or Howard Stern. So then I moved over into management and started uh, overseeing some radio stations and ended up being hired by Scripps in 1980. We're going to talk about the Scripps chapter, but before we leave the career in radio broadcasting, I've always wanted to hear, Ken Lowe, you have a great (laughs) voice as it is now as a media executive. I mean, I can hear you talking about an earnings call or announcing a merger (laughs) or, you know, just an investment presentation. And your Ken Lowe voice is pretty compelling. Oh, thank you. Well, let's hear it in the versions <laughs> of the Ken Lowe of old. Oh, my God. Well, first off, I really wasn't Ken Lowe. They would give you radio names in those days. <laughs> Dees was actually, I remember, Jay Howard. And the reason, by the way, they would give you radio names is if you didn't work out, they'd bring the other guy in and they'd call him the same name. So, you know, <laughs> people say, I think Jay Howard sounded different yesterday. Wasn't you? <laughs> But it was a very interchangeable role, right? So when they hired me, they said, look, we don't want to pay $150 for a music jingle to sing your name. We have this other station in Alabama, and there's a guy named there, Dave Roddy and Steve Norris. We're going to splice the two guys together, and we don't have to buy a new jingle. And you are Steve Roddy. I was in high school at the time. I said, oh, man, you know. Wait, you're telling me that Ken Lowe is Steve Roddy? Well, the truth is becoming known now. So in those days, you had to have a lot of energy because we used to think that people really wanted to hear us talking over the music. <laughs> you know, So we would talk up the post of the intros of the records. And uh, it's Friday night in the big city. You're with Steve on the radio on WKIX. How's that? I love it. (laughs) It's great. And then, of course, if you were trying to entice young women to call you on a request line, you would go into the Barry White voice, which was this WKIX. And uh, I got you. I got you right here, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Phone lines would light up. I'm sure. That's incredible. You should recruit some investors that way. I, I use that on my wife occasionally. She goes, oh, stop it. That's gross. <laughs> I think the listenership of Kindred Cast is going up by the minute right now. Either that or it's, uh, you know, they're dialing out as we speak. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to business. EW Scripps, the original company, started in November 1878. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, Citizen Kane probably told it best from a standpoint of those media magnets of their day, Hearst. And E.W. Scripps was one. The family all started in the San Diego area. But he uh, borrowed $10,000 from his brother in 1878, an enormous amount, of, and started the Penny Press in Cleveland, Ohio. This is Edward Scripps. This was Edward Willis Scripps, yes. A real, not only entrepreneur, but just fascinating guy because he actually thought that there was a market for newspapers for the masses. I know that sounds funny. That's why he charged a penny for it. But a lot of newspapers were not aimed at the masses in those days because much of the population being immigrant based didn't read. Right. But he really felt long term newspapers are going to be mass appeal. And so he started this penny press. He ended up, I think, over the course of a number of years, including here in New York, having 75 newspapers 
around the country, the New York World Telegraph. Here was a very popular paper for him. From that, he decided when these licenses were being granted for radio in the 20s and 30s, he would get into that. So he put radio stations on the air, television stations on the air. So it was this company who was constantly looking at new media opportunities. So what's this platform radio? What's this television? And over the years, they actually started divesting of some of the newspapers and putting more into electronic media. And along the way, he met a guy named Roy Howard. They became partners. And when you hear the name Scripps Howard, they did a lot of entrepreneurial things and started United Press International, a global competitor to what eventually became AP. They had actually UPI, United Press International, was much bigger than AP. It was a worldwide news gathering force and had more reporters, had the legendary World War II reporter Ernie Pyle, who really, for America, reported most of World War II to, to many people. Kind of the Walter Cronkite of his day, he worked for Scripps and United Press International. Anyway, it was a fascinating story. Behind all of that, in 1922, he set up a trust, which only ended a couple of years ago. It was a generation-skipping trust which had a lot of foresight. It was for tax purposes, obviously, but it was also to protect the company until his grandchildren all passed away. That happened just a couple of years ago. But then from there, they eventually got into cable systems. They were partners with the Dolans. They were partners with John Malone in cable systems. You know, I came with them in 1980 to run their radio station group, and they eventually exited radio. They exited the cable system business. Yeah, I think it's interesting that in the same year that the family put the trust in place in 1922, is also the same year where they instituted what is called the Scripps motto, mm -hmm. which is, quote, give light and the people will find their own way, end right. quote. Right. I mean, culture has always been very important to the company and the family, and it probably goes back to that moment. I wonder why he chose that year to put both the trust in place and the motto in place, really set the company and the family in motion? You know, it's a great question, Arya, and I don't profess to know the answer, but what was interesting about the motto, that motto today, give people light and they'll find a way. How? Oh, uh, by mobile phone, by podcast. I remember coming into the company and I just thought that's a rather profound thing to have come up with because he didn't say how he was going to give, give people light by print. It was all about content. Yeah. And not the platform. Yeah, the motto survives. Ah, it does to this day. A hundred years after the formation of the company, the most seminal moment occurred for Scripps, which is in 1980, Ken Lowe joined the company. And then the Ken Lowe Scripps story takes off. You came up within the Scripps family business as it existed, this concept of home and garden and this concept of entrepreneurial change from within and creating the content business. Take me through how you don't just play into business as usual and assets that are already given to you, but how you create new businesses from within an exact established company. Very fortunate to be where I was because being in a multimedia company like Scripps was, newspapers, television stations, radio stations, I had a chance to look at a lot of different businesses firsthand, be at the corporate level. Now, at the same time, in all fairness, Ari, talking about reinventing yourself, I began to realize that Scripps probably wasn't going to be in the radio business long term. So as they exited radio, I moved to oversee the programming and content and marketing for the Scripps 10 television stations. And that was a really interesting moment because, you know, all of a sudden I started thinking about media differently. I started thinking about my career differently. But I was pretty frustrated in the sense that I'd come out of a business radio that was pretty much all local media. 
You know, in those days, the only thing that wasn't local was the music you put on the air. And before consolidation, radio, in my opinion, was much more interesting. It was more of a vibrant business. You could only own two stations in a market. Now you can own God knows how many. But looking at television at the time, it's like, well, wait a minute. What do we do locally? We do the six o'clock news. This is before people were even doing morning news. We do the six o'clock news. We do the 11 o'clock news. Well, my job was to, quote unquote, buy programming. So I would buy Oprah and I would buy Wheel and Jeopardy for a station group. But I kept going to our general manager. I said, we've got to do some more local stuff here. Well, it just really wasn't in their DNA. It wasn't in their budgets. They weren't set up for it. You know, we do news, Ken. That's all we do. So I set up a group, a special group that did these specials, one-hour specials. We put them in markets, whether it was Detroit, whether it was Cincinnati, West Palm Beach, Florida, and create local specials of content just for those local markets. I remember one that was really successful was the baseball team in Cincinnati called the Big Red Machine who won several World Series. Well, we did this reunion. It was kind of a documentary, if you will, a light documentary. Ratings came in and I liked it off the charts, but it was local. People were interested in it. But I was really frustrated about what I could or couldn't do on the television side. Some of my buddies from my old radio days had actually moved over to cable television. Some of them had started MTV, Les Garland, Bob Pittman. So I started thinking about, gee, is this something that eventually I might migrate to? Because it's a little bit like radio in the sense that it's target, it's niche. The great thing that I learned in radio was brand equity, brand marketing, differentiation. For example, in radio, you may have four or five stations in the same market, basically playing the same music. What makes it unique when you're all playing the same stuff? I mean, in those days, when you would put a bumper sticker on your car, I love WNEW, okay? That was an affirmation of that was your station, and you were proud of it, and you wanted to display it. So radio was a great proving ground for me for marketing, targeting, affinity groups, and realizing that you can move the needle by going for affinity groups. And it also taught me how to differentiate brands. Affinity groups mean like having personal loyalty to yeah, the company super, or the super brand. Fans. Super fans. Super fans, if you will. Now go back to my early days, moving around the country in different locations and work. I had built a remodel and I counted up like six, seven homes. So from a consumer standpoint, it's like, wow, this is hard stuff. Where do you find information about how the hell to build a home, how to remodel a home? And I found out on the magazine stand. That's where you go. That's where you get all your ideas. You go to the magazine stand. And then I remember picking up an article one day. John Malone said, if you want to see the future of cable networks, go look at a magazine stand. That's the future of cable networks. There's going to be 500 channels. Da, 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 da. And so I began to put together, just as a hobby, really, oh, boy, you know, this would be a great idea, wouldn't it? A channel about home, everything about home. And I tried it out on a few of my friends, and they went, you got to be kidding me, man. Don't quit your day job. Okay. So I had a little wish box. I would put all these ideas in it. Don't, I, don't quit your day job. I mean, the New York Times wrote an article <laughs> that we pulled up actually from 1993 when you first launched Home and Garden, and it said in the article, quote, sarcastically, it says, quote, I can't wait to watch a network about grass growing and paint drying, end quote. Yeah. So people were skeptical. Oh, God, that's putting it mildly. To that point, I finally built up enough nerve that I'm really frustrated on the television side. Scripts are sold to radio stations. I need to reinvent myself. I think this is a great category. The generation of my friends who are watching MTV, when we have parties now, instead of saying, you see the latest Bruce Springsteen video or Michael Jackson video, are going, by the way, who's your landscaper? Who's your modeler? Because that generation was coming of age, and little did we know they were going to ignite the housing boom. 
I didn't know what I'd been preparing myself for for years for this moment. It's the old line. I mean, when opportunity knocks, you either have to accept it or for the rest of your life go, you know, I had that idea. Yeah, but you didn't act on it. So I mortgaged the house and decided I'd go out on the road and find out if I could do like John Hendricks did, go to John Malone, go to Chuck Dolan and see if they'd bankroll this cable idea. Because honestly, I didn't think there's any way in the world Scripps would support it. Scripps at that time, even though it had been a company that had started with an entrepreneur, every generation forward had become, in my opinion, less entrepreneurial. But when I joined it, it was still very much a dreamer's kind of mentality. And I guess I I picked that bug up there. But then it was like avocation meeting vocation, architecture, building, radio, targeting, music. It was all coming together in my mind. I could clearly see this channel. And then I decided that, okay, if I'm going to do this, I have to own the content because I had been tired of sitting across the table from Roger King, God rest his soul, and saying, look, if you don't pay me a 20% increase for Oprah, I'm taking it across the street. Wheel in Jeopardy goes with it. I had no control. And I thought, you know, if we're going to do this, I'm going to be in control. And in those days, you really didn't own the content, even cable channels. Everything was licensed. So we came up with a whole new model. I went out and actually put some people in business as producers. And I said, look, you produce the TV show, the TV series, this series, that series. I'll pay you this much, but I own it. This is the original, original programming strategy. Yeah, was to own everything. Not rent, not license, anything. Because I wanted to be totally in control of my destiny. It was a pretty detailed plan, REA, that this wasn't about a cable network. This was about a brand. This was about establishing a two-way communication back to radio, back to this, telling stories. Because in those days, you couldn't reach out to a cable network. They didn't have an address. It was pre-internet. They didn't have an 800 number. So if you saw something, you couldn't even comment on it. So at launch, we set up a call center. We had an 800 number. You could call us if you saw something on the air you liked, if you wanted more information on that couch on this show, you want more information on this and this and this. So from day one, we were interactive. It was a two-way street, and we would constantly blast it. It was so successful, by the way. We so blew our budget on the 800 number expense that we said, you know what? we got to cut the calls down, so let's put a local area code up so they have to pay for the calls. And they still kept calling. (laughs) But I remember one day walking into Susan Packard, who was one of the first employees I hired, came from NBC to do affiliate distribution. And she said, Ken, we're getting all these calls downstairs about the show that Toro was a lawnmower company is uh, sponsoring people want to know where can they buy this toro lawnmower i said you're kidding and the reason it was unusual we didn't publicize this number we had we were actually at just a local facility but the light bulb went off it's like whoa wait a minute commerce commerce because you know what we're doing is very much akin to what people are interested in now this is an important distinction having pretty much grown up in scripts it was drilled into my head from the newspaper side There's a difference between editorial and advertorial, Ken. This goes back to old man E.W. You got to give people light, but they have to trust what it is they're reading and the sources. And you can't, at any reason, start incorporating commerce into the editorials. So we had this really hard policy, which I, to this day, adhere to. And that is, look, when we're producing content, we're giving you, as we said in the early days, the three eyes: ideas, information, and inspiration. We are setting up a stage for you to then actually watch our commercials. Because if you're watching a kitchen remodeling show and a, a commercial comes on for Kohler sinks, you're interested in that because, gee, I may remodel my kitchen someday. But we never wanted the two to bleed to the other side. So that hard line between editorial and advertorial was critically important. And I think to this day. 
is why we have so much credibility with the audience. The public is very smart. For so long, look, I was a part of it. We used to underprogram. My point is we would not program to the intellect as much as to lowbrow just to move numbers and get numbers. But HGTV from day one was about being very clear in stating that this is about you. This is about having a two-way communication and we want to give you the information you want. And I think to this day, Ari, the reason our brands have been as successful as they have, if you talk to consumers, if you talk to our super fans, if you talk to our affinity groups, they trust the brand. They'll always say this. I trust them. They'll never lead me astray. They'll never try to hoodwink me. They'll never try to sell me something I don't want. And by the way, we made some mistakes along the way in trying to occasionally get a little too greedy and move the dial a little bit, and it always failed. This is a great entrepreneurial story, almost an artistic, creative story, because you're taking inspiration from different levers, whether it's your background in radio and the affinity concept, or really having a passion for a particular brand. And then you're talking about the idea of control, which is I think every entrepreneur starts off saying to have more control of my destiny is the only way I can really start. And that's all about the change of the licensing model to the original programming model. And then it's really about the respect for the audience and the trust and the mirroring effect that you're growing with your audience effectively. You have to be together. You have to be connected. I always describe Lion Treats that way. We, we're only going to grow by looking in the mirror of our clients and saying, we have to build the company so that we can project what the client's needs are going to be. Yeah. And we're tied together as we grow. It's a mirroring effect. And you had that with your audience. And it obviously all comes together when it works. But at the end of the day, it's just a real mark of creativity. And I think like any entrepreneur, it's not just all about the opportunity. It's also about the ants in the pants also. It's oh, really, yeah. you, you really want to move. You're anxious. You got to get going. You don't like what's going on exactly. So that yeah. feeling is also very important as a pivot point. Well, not only that, but I kind of gained a reputation in radio of creating formats that targeted the women. And when we launched HGTV in 1994, it was actually a network targeted to women. Another reason a lot of people were skeptical, to be honest with you, is in those days, the industry was pretty much all guys. So when you go into a distribution guy, guy, man, and talk about, hey, I've got this idea for a women's network, they kind of look at you like, well, we don't need, we've got one. It's called Lifetime, Channel for Women. Yeah, you have one, and you've got about 40 for men. Don't you think you know, this is something that would be exciting because women are making households decisions, da, 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 da. It was critically important, again, back to your point, that the network be reflective of where the women were in the house at that point and where they were going. So more and more women were actually taking on home repair and remodeling. And, you know, historically, well, that's the guy's area, isn't it? You never see a woman pick up a hammer or a saw. So it was somewhat empowering. At the same time, to your point, I remember I was meticulously picking out music between the breaks because early on we didn't have enough commercials to fill up the entire inventory. So, you know, it was an idea I got over the years of just these what I would call beautiful videos. They were mini videos, like they would be 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes. It was a little bit of an idea for MTV. And we would go out and shoot these great scenes of the Smoky Mountains or a, a brook or a, a waterfall. And then I had a music department. By the way, I didn't want to pay music rights. So in Tennessee, where we were based, it was pretty easy to get a bunch of pickers. So I had my own music department and license, so we didn't have to pay BMI and ASCAP. And we would do what would probably be today called a little light jazz. But the whole thing was women watch and interact with TV much differently than men. They multitask. You know, guys sit and look at the screen and, uh, by the way, don't change that channel. And, and early on, I would find that in the focus groups with women, they would be doing this, doing this, and totally know what was going on on the screen. They didn't have to watch everything. But ear was critically important. 
If you offended their ear, it could be profanity. It could be the way things were said. Boom, gone. There was this immediate reaction to HGTV from women around the country. It got to the point where, remember, this is before the Internet and people exchanging videos. We would launch in one market. And I remember this great story of a woman sending me this detailed letter about how she had HGTV. So she would tape it on her VHS machine and send it to her sister who was on the other side of the country. And then they would get on the phone and talk about the show because her sister did not have HGTV on her cable system. And again, the light bulb went up. Affinity group, social. People want to talk about the same thing. We want to compare. This is 94, 95, 96 when we were just getting started. But I realized, again, this is not about a cable network. This is about content that can live on different platforms. And so as every platform came along, we owned the content, we would just move to that platform. So many of these concepts I can bring back to today and hopefully to tomorrow. Even your story about people's reaction of we already have a woman's channel, it's called Lifetime, (laughs) and therefore it satisfies the strategy. It's almost like when the beginning of the internet or digital came about, Every media company had a digital person or a digital division. This is mm-hmm. our digital group or a digital revenue officer. Yeah, they're over there in the corner. They're over there in the corner. <laughs> and then it became clear, like, well, I think we may need to integrate that concept into every one of our normal divisions to truly unlock the power of brands and media. Oh, man. It's an interesting concept of kind of taking that application that's usually pigeonholed and put it back into the blood flow of the company. For me, you know, when I started HGTV, Once the uh, call center we set up, then we started moving to the Internet because we could do immediate reaction or as opposed the call center. It was an 800 number, but we'd still take letters and faxes and things like that. And we would write people back. We would send a response to the fax. But we had this incredible communication with the end user. And then in the early days, it's like an old radio trick, and uh, we gave away a home. And my own team said, what are we doing this for? I said, trust me, this is going to get us something besides just uh, watching television shows. And today, REA, the HGTV Dream Home, we give away four or five homes a year. The biggest, the dream home, you win a $2 million home. It's fully furnished. It's usually somewhere on the coast in the mountains. A GM car in the front, fully furnished. And then $250,000 in cash from Rocket Mortgage. We last year got $131 million entries. Now, remember, they come directly to us, not through a cable box. So when people talk about over the top, what you're really talking about is the consumer behavior. You know, what Netflix has, which I desire, which everybody desires, is that one-to-one with consumer. We have that. Right now, on average, we send out four to 500,000, used to call them emails, we call messages now, targeted emails to gardening, quilting, these small affinity groups that have enormous firepower. So what HGTV allowed us to do is have all these subsets of affinity groups that you couldn't serve from a cost-efficient basis on video, but you could in the digital area. And right now in digital, the Food Network, for example, is the number one digital food delivery system, beating Snapchat, beating BuzzFeed, beating everybody. For content. For content. Yeah. And the same with HGTV and home. We're in the home category, but we're in a lot of other categories too. Kitchen remodeling, bath remodeling, you know, outdoor landscaping. And those subsets, those are the future revenue streams. It's a little bit like the guys in the corner in the newsroom mm-hmm. back in the newspaper. You know, those young guys, we just bought, for example, and you know, the Spoon U, which was started by two young girls. Mackenzie. Yeah, you know. And it was all about, okay, this is a very small business that could become a very good business. But you know what? We've integrated them right into the company. They're a part of the Food Network. You go to the Food Network test kitchen down in Chelsea Market here in New York, and you will see us making television. But more importantly, the kitchen is actually where we create every recipe for every platform. 
be it television shows, be it digital, be it mobile. And we stream out of there to Facebook. We use that as our laboratory and we own everything. As you know, we move globally. These formats, people want to eat. They want to remodel their homes around the world. So um, Mainstream concepts. But I've always said that digital and OTT or over-the-top or direct-to-consumer is really all about just how you're engaging with your customer. Totally. We could go outside and hand out pamphlets or hand out newspapers, and we'll be engaging with our customer, but it will feel very old school, right? The concept is the engagement factor and making sure that you are appropriately innovative and thinking about different ways to engage. Yeah. That is what Over the Top is all about. Totally. I've never heard it said better because I think, again, you always look at the business from the lens of whatever you're in. I constantly told our people earlier on, stop thinking that we're in the television business or the cable television. We are in the brand business and we need to go wherever the consumer wants to go and get there just enough ahead of them. They think we're already there waiting for them, right? As opposed to, oh gosh, I guess this is a business we better jump into. It's too late and we can't get there. And by the way, along the way, I've had incredible disasters and mistakes. We bought a company, are you talking about commerce? We bought a company called Shopzilla. It was my idea. I want to say we paid half a billion dollars for it back in the 2005 or whatever. But the idea was, these two young guys. June 27th, 2005. Oh, the pain, the pain. I feel it now. <laughs> uh, by the way, this is the same time Rupert bought MySpace. The point was, these two young entrepreneurs, it was a, a comparison shopping site, and Lord knows there were plenty of those. But their concept was to create the universal shopping cart. And it was a little shopping cart up in the uh, upper right hand corner. The point was, okay, you plug in something, you know, this such and such hairdryer. And then the comparison shopper will go out and they scan everything and come back with the lowest prices, right? And then this universal shopping cart, you wouldn't have to go to their site. You could put it in the universal shopping cart. So one cart would allow you to shop the world. Well, as we know, that didn't work, <laughs> except when it came to Amazon. Right. So in 2005, I was like, wow, okay, we can put content up. By the way, if you want to buy that couch, not here in the show, but you know, over here, we're going to give you an opportunity to do commerce. I put Shopzilla on all of our content as far as blasting the marketing, our newspapers, our television stations we had on our cable networks. This was a dismal failure. Did you ever think about buying Home Shopping Network? I mean, not to talk about deals, but I mean, that seems like someone should have pitched that idea. Oh, you're, you're really going down the Kenlo memory lane of dismal failures. Yeah, we bought Shop at Home somewhat along the same idea because what was happening was mostly in the food category. All of our chefs would, over the weekend, go to QVC. I remember Emerald came back and told me one day, I said, Emerald, how was your weekend? That's the way I had him on the food network. He's, he's not fantastic. I was on QVC. I sold $60 million worth of pots and pans. I said, What? <laughs> So we bought this shopping network in Nashville, Tennessee. I think it was about 60 million households. The idea was we take all our chefs and our home improvement guys and everything, and we would take them and they would sell products, right? We would send people to shop at home. The problem was in those days, and again, interestingly enough, when you look at Wayfair and some of these things now, they're selling furniture over the internet. The only thing you could really make money on was jewelry. And fascinatingly enough, I think if you fast forward, you know, we have a partnership with Amazon now and we move commerce, but we just can't do it in the framework of what we've created. Created, but Amazon can, and yeah. that's what they were created to do. So my point is, along the way, REA, I created a radio home improvement network. Why not? You know, my background was radio. We had HGTV. It just didn't work, and part of the reason was consolidation of radio. We weren't getting the radio station ownership business, but those guys are finally starting to own their own content, their own announcers. Nobody really wanted to partner with us on it. 
Yeah. Well, look, so there was all kinds of failures along the way. Well, you have to try things, right? And oh. if you don't try things, you're not going to I'll blame fail. those all on Steve Roddy. My alter ego. The alter ego. <laughs> who's obviously an idiot and doesn't understand it. <laughs> if you're not failing, you're not trying. I mean, right. pick a cliche. If you're getting it up to the plate. I think you have to have in any organization this healthy entrepreneurship of constant change of just, gosh, we got to try something. Because in my opinion, once you kind of get used to whatever business you're in, one of my great mentors, though, <laughs> back at radio, he said, you know, Ken, there's only one way to coast. It's downhill. And I think you're coasting. And I think we're going downhill. You can't coast. You just can't rest on your laurels anymore. If you say, okay, this is the business we're in, then you say, okay, what's the lifespan? You think we can do this for three, four, five years? I mean, you used to do a business and we'd map it out and you'd say, wait, this business will last for 10, 12 years. Now you're lucky if you'll be really successful for three. So if you don't have a healthy sense of paranoia and constantly reinventing yourself, I just don't think you're going to be around very long, at least successfully. Certainly in a growth mindset, right? Totally. The flip side of having a direct relationship with the consumer is being beholden to distribution. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning of HGTV, I'd like to draw back to today a little bit and things that have changed or they haven't, but you had control over the content, you had control over the idea and the concept and you launched it, but then you still have to go on the road and get distribution. Mm. And the brand was resonating with a consumer as soon as you launched it, you had a real relationship there. But you still had a third party, yeah. the distribution companies, cable companies. Now, we all know that it's a club and everyone works together and everyone's created a lot of value together. So the pie has grown. Maybe now it's a little more rigid, mm -hmm. which puts a lot more pressure on that direct-to-consumer opportunity and model. And for the cable companies, new ways of reinventing themselves. But how did it go back then? Well, you're on the road with a suitcase and the idea and you have to go get some distribution because otherwise no one's going to see it. Any entrepreneur that you've had on this podcast or all the ones you've known over the years will tell you, if you're not going to be accustomed to having the door slammed in your face and being told that your child is ugly and I could go on and on and on, it was total rejection. The only way we were able to get HGTV up and launched, the reason 1994 and the fact that I made the move, remember I was running the TV group and along came something called retransmission consent. And at the time, it was really pushed by CBS. But out of retransmission consent, ESPN2 was launched. Rupert launched FX. NBC launched what at the time was called America's Talking, which became MSNBC. And CBS, who had started it all, had nothing. Cable operators could launch new channels and or could get the carriage rights for the local television group if they agreed to whatever terms of retransmission consent. So this was a window. But had that not come along, there's no way HGTV would launch because the cable operators thought it was the dumbest idea. I remember one guy. I said, look, this is a channel. You know, it's about home. Da, 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 da. It's going to appeal to women. This was 1994. And, oh, man. He said, we don't need anything for the chicks. And I said, for the what? I said, no, this is not poultry. He said, no, chicks, you know, women, women. We don't need anything for women. It just gives you an idea. And it's not to knock on the industry. It was just, they really didn't want, you know, in that club. By the way, Golf Channel, are you kidding? Yes, we'll launch it. Now I get a free set of golf clubs. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. It was just soundly, soundly rejected. And you didn't take, or you weren't willing to take any equity in for carriage. Well, <laughs> no, no, I, I do remember, hopefully if Leo Hendry hears this, he would remember as well. I remember talking to Leo at the time at TCI and Leo said, look, and it's very simple. He, Leo was the CEO of TCI yeah, under yeah. John for a long time. Yeah, great guy. And Leo said, but, you know, it's very simple. He said, you and I, we walked down the hall, we sit down with Dr. Malone and if you're willing to give us some equity, then we get this thing launched on TCI at night. And I said, well, nah. But if you really look at the cable system model, it was not democracy. Some of the best ideas were on the back of the shelf. Food Network, for example, when we acquired in 97, had a 10-year free license 
to the cable operator. So it wasn't necessarily a problem getting it launched. It was how do you make money with this thing? So we had to go in and turn that upside down. But the distribution obviously has always been incredibly valuable and vital. But because you were an underdog and because, therefore, a higher portion of your revenue was always based on the ad markets versus just rely on the affiliate fees or the subscription model for the cable operators, it did, I think, at the end of the day, push you more into being a branded company, multi-platform, yeah. direct-to-consumer. Because once you're in advertising, you can get advertising anywhere. It doesn't have to be just on the cable operators anymore. So then I think that is what gave you that another leg of energy into the entrepreneurial business strategy, like your Facebook Live content with food and everything else. And that made you much more multi-platform comfortable in today's day and age. You're absolutely right. The biggest gripe I have about our industry is we have not moved quickly enough on the technological side to really effectively go after more advertising dollars in an efficient way. Right now, for me and my position, our biggest competitors today are not other cable networks. It's what Amazon is doing. When Amazon looks at consumer behavior, when you look at buying Whole Foods, okay, Whole Foods in many people's minds was starting to slide as far as brand, but you were buying consumer behavior and the opportunity to learn more about the buying habits. And to me, that's an opportunity we've missed. A lot of this information stops at the set-top box. I can tell you the information I'm getting from the feedback on all of the consumers that we touch, either through winning the dream home or these targeted emails, we're using in advertising right now, and it's really efficient. If I could have the same information, for example, Netflix has, it would be phenomenal. You know, you could build a model that doesn't need sub-fees. And by the way, at what point does a consumer say, enough, I'm paying 15 bucks for this, and I can't keep track of all of the streaming stuff I have coming in. So... The advertising model is not a bad model in the sense that that's the model you choose. Now, over the top, yeah, there are a lot of consumers that say, I like HBO. I don't like commercials. But how many of those are you willing to pay for without advertising? We're just a survey this past week that actually millennials are saying, you know, I'm okay with advertising. I'd rather yeah. get it free than I would to pay this much more. Then again, what's the advertising? How it's done? Is it done in a tasteful way? Is it done to an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old or 20-year-old in the way they want to disseminate information versus a 38-year-old mother. Well, we go in cycles because ultimately you have to continue to refresh what you think the consumer wants based on that data. And of course, if you know what the consumer wants and you read the data correctly and you target the programming the right way, then the advertising model is a great model. It is. Because it's a Darwinistic model. The cream rises to the top. You effectively know exactly what the consumer wants. And the consumer has only a certain amount of appetite for the best. Mm -hmm. And that works. If you're now stuffing the consumer with a lot of things they don't want, no, no. then you go back to the distribution model that we've grown up with because that allows for a little bit more risk tolerance because you're not really sure exactly where the consumer is and you can give them a bundle or portfolio. Aria, you couldn't be more right. When we think about a show instead of Game of Thrones, I don't want to have you sit down for 90 minutes and watch. I want you to have commercial breaks where there are pauses. I can tease the next section, whatever, but I can build in a break that if you're interested, you'll watch it and or it's information that I can disseminate in other ways because you can click on this and that's where technology's got to catch up. This is the kind of interactive stuff you want to know about. Oh, gee, there's Bobby Flay. I'd like to know where you got that knife. Now, you don't have to. You can just watch it without the remote control and the interference. But our content is tailor-made to partner with advertisers. We've been talking about scripts and your background of scripts and what you're doing today. Take it to a sort of higher level now. And we've had these concepts of entrepreneurialism and being gutsy and being bold and owning your content and in customer engagement. Where is the media business going now? And how do you think it evolves? Because 
it's definitely changing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And scale is obviously important. I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on the Discovery Scripts merger sure, that's been sure. announced. But as part of your view of the industry, your vision, how does this all play together? Where are we going? I'd love to pretend. And aren't I, you glad you're not running it from here? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. As a matter of fact, I mean this with all sincerity. I would love to be a young guy again. I think there's so many opportunities out there right now. I really don't know where all this is going, REA. Is it more complicated? Yeah. But if you go back to when we launched HGTV in 1994 and I went to the cable show, there were 104 new networks at the cable show on the floor in New Orleans. 104. Okay, think about it. 1994. I want to start a cable network. Oh, it's only 103 other guys doing the same thing. One was the Popcorn Channel. Now, out of the 104, two made it. History and HGTV. There will always be competition, but there are always going to be opportunities. To your point, I think a big area of combining technology with what we're all doing is personalization. It's a long way along the AI path. Some of this scares me, but if you're into home programming, right now, the reason I created these linear brands is for someone to come and watch HGTV. 94% of our viewing is live. 94%. It's second only to news and sports. Why? Why is that? When people come to HGTV, I have already selected your shows. Sound like radio, right? I've got your format. I know you. This is what you want. Your app not to tune out. I like home. I like food. I watch it. I leave it on. I walk out. I come back in. It's not offensive. There's no profanity. I like this. Targeted women. But who's to say that Arya Borkov couldn't create this program software that says you like home content? I'm going to limit you to HGTV. I'll go pick a show here. I'll get this. Here's a little snippet from here. So personalized for me. Personalized on-demand content. Yeah, and then this just keeps getting more refined and more refined. Now, one of the challenges there, in my opinion, is you become more and more isolated in your own little world, and you're less social when it comes to, hey, did you watch the Property Brothers last night? So I think what we're finding is we've always said, oh, this is going to be the future. It's not, because there's still a thing about socializing in the society. And to me, if you look, for example, REA, like the Food and Wine Festival we do with the Food Network, 50,000 people show up on the beach in South Beach to eat a hamburger with Rachel Ray or see Bobby Flake cook something. Are you kidding me? It's the event. It's the affinity group coming together with something of passion, right? We got a couple in Waco, Texas, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Waco, Texas, they built this little farm down there. I forgot how many thousand of people come a week, but last year I want to say there were like 600,000 people that would visit Waco, Texas. This year was 109 million and most of them are going to visit this couple that does the show called Fixer Upper. They've decided they're going to spend a little more time with their family. We're good for them. They're not going to be doing a show after this coming season. But my point is, why in the world would people go to Waco, Texas to visit a couple who've created Magnolia Farms in these kinds of numbers, except for there's something socially that's driving people there. It's like, if you build it, they will come. So you take that, you take the food and wine festival, a lot of other things we do. We do a lot of event stuff that gives people the opportunity to come together and socialize, not just deal with media and watch and only communicate via technology. Because it's the old line, high tech and low touch. People still want to touch. They still want to be in communication. You know, restaurants have never been more popular. There are a lot of social things that are changing. Malls are changing, but that's a whole different scenario relative. People still want to get out and do things. So yeah, that's interesting. The more that the technology allows everyone to be social, quote unquote, in the mediums of Facebook and other social mediums, the more it's isolating. Totally. And that will drive people towards events and gatherings and other forms of social but activity. You know what we're, what's interesting, what we're finding with affinity groups, if you're interested in certain things. You're not as interested in the demographics and psychographics of it. Let's say you and I are both into cars or you know, I'm just taking a, a guy thing or let's say quilting. 
<laughs> we could show up and all of a sudden have this incredible conversation. Oh, you do quilting, you do this, this, this. You could care less my background. It's all about the affinity, right? So we're finding socialization now in different ways than it used to be, where you would come to an event. You still go to an event to hear the same musician you and I both like, but there's no opportunity to socialize. In our categories, food is probably the top of the list. There's an opportunity to socialize around our categories, around decorating, around design, around food. And those are the things, talking about the future, that I think you're going to see us be doing more of, event-driven kind of things. Interesting. So you have... Commerce, mm-hmm. events, advertising, multi-platform, and hopefully still some level of affiliate models that, that play out. So yeah, look, it's I complicated. Think the, I think the affiliate model is going to be around for a long time. It's going to change. It's like everything. But there are going to be a certain number of people that still want to say, now that I can get all these different over-the-top streaming pieces, I just go back to the small skinny bundle that I'm paying the 28 bucks for. And so there's going to be that. You know, you'll probably start to see some more sports stuff being broken apart, but it's going to take a while with all the contracts. But, you know, it's constantly going to evolve and change. And it goes back to where we started. You know, you just got to be willing to roll the dice and roll with the punches and, and try be, new things and be flexible and realize that, you know, a model that you've depended on for a long time is under duress and change and have a mindset that we've got. It's a Jack Welch's old line change before you have to. Touch on the scale point as we go into the new frontier here. And obviously you have a merger that's been announced with Discovery and Scripps. Talk about why we need scale these days in content. Well, scale for the sake of scale, I'm not sure you totally need. You need scale in the sense of what's eventually going to happen when Discovery Discovery and scripts merge, and that is back to the ownership of the content and the ability to do it on a global footprint. We're now rapidly moving into, in my opinion, REA, the need to be global. Let's take, for example, the fact that we launched HGTV in Poland, in Warsaw, I think the first of this year. It had the immediate response that it did here in the States. But the difference is, instead of exporting American content, it was all Polish It was formatted. It was Polish personalities. It was different culture. And by the way, there's still a lot of exporting of American content. It's spectacular. But when you get into our categories, or when you get into Discovery's categories, localization from culture, that's going to be huge. And then imagine if you've got a Food Network kitchen instead of just Chelsea, you've got it in 20 countries. Imagine Dream Home giveaways in 50 countries. Imagine all the digital opportunities you do on a global basis. Now imagine connecting affinity groups on a global basis. So we'll take our quilting example. You're not just talking about the quilting chapter of New York. You're talking about a global gardening club. So, you know, I think the opportunity to put discovery and scripts together shouldn't be viewed as a merger. It should be viewed no differently than I viewed 1994 when I got 30-some people in a room and said, okay, this is a new day. We're going to create this thing called HGTV. Scripps and Discovery coming together is an opportunity to kind of reinvent the business model a little bit on a global basis, use a lot of quality brands, own the IP. They do a great job of targeting men. We do a great job of targeting women. I don't think we could have a better CEO and leader in David Zasloff. He happens to be a personal friend, but I also think he's just a dynamic visionary when it comes to executing some of the stuff, very hard stuff is going to have to be done. So this is really exciting for me because I think it's the birth of a new global company as opposed to just a merger of two quote-unquote media companies. And the great thing about David is, and his board, including Dr. Malone, the Newhouse family, they understand things are going to have to change. This is not so much scale for the sake of scale, is just getting the right brands and content with the right digital strategy and then putting it out on a global basis. You're now, as part of this pending merger, going to be adopting some new families, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the Malones and the new houses. 
but you have lived with a family and the Scripps family for a long time, and they've been living with a company, as I said, for almost 140 years. Talk about the end of that chapter when it comes to the media business, that the Scripps family now has many other things that they're focused on in terms of oceanography and biology and mm-hmm. changing the world and impacting things for good. But from a media perspective, that torch is going to be passed over. The baton is going to be passing to new generation or, or new grouping, at least. We could do a whole nother podcast on that. Let's just stay with the Scripps family. You know, I deal with this fifth, sixth, seventh generation now. It's hard to believe that many generations from the founder. You know, historically, the further away you get from the founder, the less likely it is you get a family member who is either going to be the leader or they're going to be that passionate about what it is. I will have to say this. The Scripps family has been fantastic to me. They've been supportive. Probably a bigger question is just controlling shareholders and family control companies, right? Because there's still a lot of media companies out there like Scripps. I mean, you could talk about Hearst, whether these companies are public or private. You could talk about the Dolans and Chuck Dolan, the Murdochs. And, you know, and, and people say, you know, well, what happens when Sumner, when Rupert, Chuck, when these people go to their great reward? I'm now talking the sixth and seventh generation. Old man E.W. went to his reward a long time ago. The trust perpetuated the company to a degree. But don't you think REA gets a little bit back to what we've been talking about a lot? And that is it's not just a company, but if it's a family control company, you as a family have to decide, is this a business we want to be in? By the way, there's not one Scripps family member that works in Scripps Networks. Not one. Now, that's intentional because they've been very passionate about we want people in that business to run the companies. You know, we don't want it to be a family company in the sense. You know, we're going to continue to put family in it, family in it. It's worked for other families in some cases. Some cases it hadn't in Hearst. You look at the job Frank has done in running that company. It's not been a Hearst in the CEO job. Scripps never had a Scripps person as CEO going back to all the years. So... I think it's a complicated answer in the sense that the John Malones of the world come along very rarely. John is engaged as he's ever been, I think. You know him better than me, but if you're the man or woman who started the company and your kids don't want it, you shouldn't be in that business, right? You should do what's right for the business. They're fortunate that they had you. Well, don't know about that. But let's have a little fun to wrap it up here. Okay. Because your uniqueness in my life in the world of media as being a company and a CEO based in the South <laughs> is you have taught me a few Southern, oh, Southern well. slang here that I think we should practice a little bit. Let's educate our listeners a little bit on what the South gets so right that up here in the North we take too seriously. Oh, gosh. Well, I do think one of my favorite Southern sayings is, you know, we're just sitting here suffering in comfort. We've... With suffering and comfort, Ken, you know, it's about to worry me to death that I'm doing all this suffering, but I'm comfortable. A lot of the South that I grew up with was music-based. The thing tying all this stuff together, Frank Lloyd Wright had this great quote, that great architecture is really just frozen music. So if you think about music, and I tell people this all the time, music if it's for you, it's the place to go to. When I was 15, 16 years old, I was working at this radio station, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, WAIR, with an announcer. I was kind of his backup. I was his apprentice who was on at night. He was the only African-American disc jockey on this station. The rest of the guys were all white. He worked at night. And his real name was Oscar Alexander Jr., but his radio name was Daddy-O on the Patio. And Daddy-O on the Patio had like a 70 share. And everybody listened to Daddy-O on the Patio. And I was working for him one night, and in walks this six foot five Greek god. And he was a friend of Daddy O's. He was from Macon, Georgia, and he introduced himself as Otis Redding. And Daddy O and Otis and I went out that night. I grew up a lot because they shared adult beverages with me, but I remember 
long story short, Otis told me, he said, look, you seem like a good kid. He said, you're going to have some hard times in your day, son. You're going to find a lot of challenges. But just remember this. When you need it, you got to go to the music. You always got to go to the music because that's going to save your soul. And to this day, I mean, you and I have talked about it because uh, I know how much music impacts you. When I need a creative period, when I just need to get away, you know, it's just music. And I have to go there and it takes me to a different place. And I have to allow myself to try different music and listen to different things. But I'm fortunate to be in that neck of the woods near Nashville because we have some incredible musicians there. I mean, not just country music. And you know that. It's kind of a beacon now for people of all types of music to come. There's so many great musicians there and they make so much great music it's way more you needed to hear but what's your favorite Otis Redding song oh gosh Dock of the Bay still because you know unfortunately it wasn't long after that his plane went down crashed and he died and I was with Daddy-O that night there was just no consoling him but I remember the song hadn't been out very long and Daddy-O just put it on the air and we played it for like three hours straight huh. and so it's imprinted on my mind so many great Otis Redding songs. I'll end with a uh, Southern saying that you taught me. I remember. <laughs> I'm always careful about which ones that we can say on podcasting. I think this one's okay. Honey Hush. Honey Hush, yeah. You have to be careful who you say that to because it's meant to be, you got to be kidding me, right? Right. Yeah. But some people go, what do you mean? I should shut up? No, no. Honey Hush. And you have to, hush. <laughs> Just the right enunciation. The New York equivalent of you got to be kidding me is <laughs> yeah. Honey Hush. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Uh, Thank you very much, Ken. It's been a great pleasure, and congratulations on all of your success and talent, and we look forward to seeing many more things in different venues and even staying around the media business for a long time so I can keep learning. Well, thank you, and congratulations to you, my friend. I'm so proud of all you've built at Lion Tree or building here, and you talk about a family business. This is going to be one for a long time, and I appreciate your vision, and I appreciate what you do for our industry and constantly trying to get information to us and things like these podcasts. It's critically important, and uh, keep up the great work and stay healthy. Thank you. Have a cigar soon. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to leave a review at iTunes because it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and now Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening, and we'll see you next time. Audiation.